This is Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi, two of the top web bloggers in the legal profession. And yes, they are attorneys, one from California and one from Massachusetts, squaring off on legal news and legal observations. Lawyer to Lawyer is sponsored by Law.com, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen today to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm Craig Williams from sunny Southern California. I'm Bob Ambrogi from Massachusetts, and gee, I, I was thinking today, Craig, how I'm tired of hearing you always describe it as sunny in California, because it just never is here in Massachusetts. But that said, I write the blog uh, Law Sites, another blog called Media Law, and also uh, contribute to the Law.com Legal Blog Watch. And Craig? And I write a blog called May It Please the Court, and Bob, since I was born in Massachusetts, I certainly understand why I now live in California. <laughs> but uh, today's program, Bob, is on... The pet food contamination issue, uh, March 16th, 2007, Ontario-based Menu Foods recalled more than 60 million cans and pouches of pet food that it marketed under a variety of brand names. The company acted after receiving reports from owners that their pets had become ill. Menu said its recalled food was contaminated by wheat gluten that contained a prohibited chemical, and that happened after it switched to a new wheat gluten supplier. The recall came after a number of complaints to the manufacturer. Uh, there are a number of instances reported of cats and dogs in the United States that developed kidney failure after eating uh, the contaminated pet food. Uh, to date, Menu Foods has reported uh, approximately 14 animal deaths to the Food and Drug Administration. Uh, this has, of course, resulted in, in outrage by pet owners throughout the United States and uh, has led some to file lawsuits or join class action suits. Uh, and uh, a number of these are directed at, at menu. My understanding, we can talk to the guests about this, is there are other manufacturers uh, implicated in this as well. Well, in particular, Bob, when menu found out about the lawsuits, uh, they apparently took action and allegedly made uh, harassing phone calls to pet owners who were represented by lawyers. Uh, and despite that they didn't want to talk, and according to some court records, the court uh, has ordered the company to leave some of those people alone. Well, today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we will discuss the pet food recall, the, the lawsuits uh, that are resulting from that, and some, some broader issues of, of product liability and product property damage uh, as they are implicated in this situation. We'd like to welcome our first guest attorney, Jay Edelson, who's a partner at the firm of Blim and Edelson LLC out of Chicago. Jay has focused his practice on class actions and complex civil litigation. He's been involved in a number of high-profile mass tort class and mass actions, including ones in particular against menu foods for selling uh, allegedly contaminated pet food for Merck, regarding its prescription pain drug Vioxx and suits involving damages arising from secondhand smoke. In April of 2007, Jay testified at the Subcommittee on Agricultural Appropriations, the Senate Committee on Appropriations, and a U.S. Senate hearing on pet food contamination. And that was in connection with one of the class actions he's currently prosecuting. He now represents over 600 clients whose pets have been allegedly injured or killed as a result of consuming a uh, again, allegedly contaminated pet food. Welcome to the show, Attorney Edelson. Thanks so much for having me. Also joining us today is Attorney Bruce Wagman, who's a partner in the firm Schiff Harden LLP in San Francisco. Mr. Wagman concentrates his practice in animal law. Mr. Wagman is the chief outside litigation counsel for the Animal Legal Defense Fund, the ALDF. And in that role, he oversees and devises ALDF's nationwide 
Animal Protection Litigation Program. Mr. Wegman is the co-author of Animal Law, the first casebook for animal law courses in law schools, and he lectures across the country on animal law issues on a regular basis. Welcome to the show, Mr. Wegman. Thanks for having me. Well, let's start with uh, Jay Edelson and, and ask if you could kind of give us an overview of, of the litigation uh, as it now stands and, uh, and what the issues are. Sure, I'd be happy to. Uh, we filed one of the first class actions in uh, mid-March of this year against Menu Foods, a nationwide class action. Um, back then, a lot of the facts hadn't come out, and as, uh, as they did trickle out, more and more class actions were filed. We're up to over 90 federal class actions have been filed. Uh, there's now uh, a multi-district litigation proceeding where we expect the cases will all be centralized before one jurisdiction, and we're waiting uh, to hear uh, which which court will uh, will end up hearing these cases. In terms of, of the facts, I guess uh, uh, you guys did, did a good job explaining them. Um, I would disagree with one thing which is uh, the number of animals that have been affected. As you mentioned, uh, we, we're representing 600 people whose pets have either died or gotten sick. Uh, the, the number 14, which you threw out, which, which Menu Foods originally was claiming um, ate this contaminated food, what, what really happened was Menu Foods did some private independent testing of the food, and as a result of the testing, I think about 14 of 25 animals um, died. Um, so that's the 14 number. We actually know now that thousands of pets have died as a result of the contaminated food, and uh, that's what this litigation is about. Was I correct that, that there are other manufacturers implicated in this besides menu foods? Correct. Um, there, there are a number. Uh, there's so many different lawsuits, and different lawsuits are naming different defendants, but there are a number of retailers, suppliers, and other manufacturers who've been brought in by different parties. And, and let me just ask, just one follow-up to that. Craig, in his introduction, uh, used the word allegedly in front of the contaminated foods. And, I, and I'm, I'm curious, is that still an issue? I mean, are they denying that this food was contaminated? Uh, or is it? Uh, or, or what really are the, the issues in, in the case that need to be litigated? I, I don't think there's any question that, that there is, that at least some of the pet food was contaminated, um, I don't mean to speak for their attorneys. I'm sure that they'll make their arguments that, that we're overstating the amount of contamination or overstating the, the number of deaths, and, and, and um, a jury or a judge will have to decide that. Uh, but I, I think that everybody agrees that, uh, that a lot of food here was, uh, was contaminated with, uh, with really poison. Bruce, what kind of experiences have your clients had with, these, with this problem? Um, well, I've, I was involved in one similar action to the one Jay's prosecuting, although it was a single class action that spanned about three years and, and just finished up about six months ago, I guess. So I've, I've been involved in this kind of case. Uh, it's it's not a, a real common type of animal law case, but it's certainly one that probably is increasing. There was a, a, also a, another pet food out of uh, mainly the southeastern United States that had problems about two uh, two years ago. So it, it comes up from time to time. This is certainly the biggest. What's the source of the contamination? What did it, I had heard in some news reports that it came from China, it involved melanin. Uh, how did this happen? 
I'm going to defer to Jay on all the factual questions. I, I know some of the answers, but he knows them far better than me, so he's definitely the guy for this. Uh, sure. Um, keep in mind that, that we have not uh, been able to conduct discovery yet, so a lot of what we're relying on is um, what's out there in the news or what we've heard through um, different governmental agencies we're working with. Uh, but, but what appears to have happened is a Chinese supplier of wheat gluten was intentionally um, putting in um, uh, something called melamine, which they were doing in order to trick the system into thinking that, the, that their wheat gluten had more protein than it actually um, has. And they would do that, um, and apparently it's been a problem in China uh, in other instances in the past. So they would do that in, so that um, companies from outside of China would, would think that they were getting uh, more worthy product and they would pay more for it. And apparently they just miscalculated, put in so much of this melamine that, um, that it ended up having a really harmful effect. Melamine is nothing that, that ought to be in, in food in the first place. And as we've seen in, in this tragedy, uh, when enough gets in there, it's going gonna, it's gonna to kill pets. Let me ask uh, Mr. Wegman what, what may sound like a little bit of an off-the-wall question or a naive question, perhaps, but I, I, it, it seems to me, in what little I know about the field of animal law, that, that much of what we consider animal law is really almost more, more property law, that, that, that what we're talking about here are interf— we're looking at pets, perhaps, or animals as, as property of, of people who have standing to bring litigation in the courts. Is that the basis for this kind of litigation? And, and if so, is that changing at all, evolving at all? Uh, well, there are some who would call animal law specialized property law just because animals are property under the legal system. But I think there's much bigger issues, and animal law certainly <clears throat> uh, covers a much broader span than this without going into the all the other areas in which I practice animal law, just sort of tick them off quickly. There's farm animals, there's biomedical research, there's entertainment, uh, custody issues, trust, wills and trust issues. So back to, back to the focus of the program, the kind of thing that uh, Jay's involved in and that these cases focus on, I think, is really the valuation, if you will, of the connection between humans and their companion animals and trying to increase the recognition of that relationship, uh, the value of it, and appreciate it uh, in the eyes of the law. So whether you call them, whether you sort of fight the property paradigm and say they should no longer be called property, or you recognize that they are property, but they are, nobody can dispute, a different type of property than any other kind because they're living, feeling beings, the, the focus really has to be on the appreciation of animals, qua animals, and uh, and the property issues certainly come up. And uh, I know Jay's facing them, and, and a case like this has those issues come up. But I think, the, for me, the, uh, at least, the interesting aspect of this litigation is uh, rec having an opportunity to demonstrate to the courts and society the importance of that connection, which I, I think is becoming increasingly undisputed. And we, as a society, we're feeling our way towards an, a new way of looking at animals. Uh, especially companion animals, given the large number, literally tens of millions, something like 70 million households in America have animals, the incredible amount of money humans spend on their animals for their care and, and for their happiness uh, just makes it obvious that this is not uh, a piece of property like any other piece of property. 
But but I guess that leads to the question of are are we ever moving towards the point of suggesting that that animals have legal rights in and of themselves, uh, independent of their human owners or companions? Well, um, are we moving? I, I guess we're moving towards it. Uh, but rights is a, it's such a loaded word for us lawyers, and and even maybe more for the public. Uh, when they hear animal rights, they think about protesters blowing up buildings or or uh, standing outside of Nordstrom's and. Rights is, one, one could argue, and some do, that animals have some rights because of the cruelty laws. There are some protections. I mean, you can think of rights as protections. And are we moving towards a day when animals can do whatever they want and uh, run down the street free? I, I hope not, because we, we'd all have problems, especially the animals. Are we moving towards a, a day and age where animals are subjected to less abuse in our society because of our recognition of them as sentient beings? Yes, I think so, and I hope so. And that, certainly that's that's the focus of much of the litigation uh, I work on and is, is one of the focuses here as well. Jay, how do you bridge the gap between uh, property law, chattels, and personal injury law to a jury as far as animals are concerned and pets? Well, uh, that's a good question. And um, uh, first, I, I want to say I agree with what Bruce uh was talking about. Um, there's, there's maybe one thing I can add to that, which is even under the law um, about property, all property is not valued in the same way. The example I always give is if I, um, if I were to steal a family heirloom of yours, which might only be worth $10 in the open market, it may be worth significantly more to you because it's irreplaceable. And what a lot of courts do is they look at what they call the intrinsic or subjective value of that of that property, um, and that's and that's what you might be able to recover through a court case. Um, I think in this type of case, we certainly have those arguments that um, that are available to us. We've got people who maybe acquired a cat uh, from a pound and paid fifty dollars um, in fees for that cat. Then their cat gets sick, and they've spent thousands of dollars. Uh, trying to nurse it back to health. Now, if you just looked at pure um, economic property and, and legal issues, you'd say you'd say that that is not is not reasonable for a person to spend two thousand dollars to try to save a fifty dollar piece of property. And because we all have a duty to mitigate damages under the law, um, a real strict interpretation would be that that a person couldn't even get the, those two thousand dollars back. We think. The law clearly understands you're allowed to get the $2,000 back, and once you just start uh, expanding that principle a little bit, we think that we're going to be able to, to get into these other issues like how much is the pet actually worth. Um, I, I want to mention one other thing because this is probably more uh, a specific response to your question, which is what's going to be really interesting in this case is that we've got pet food companies on the other side, and this is not just a legal case for them. This is a big PR um, nightmare, and the more they want to push, they want to push back on the law and say no, pets are just property and they're not worth a lot. That's going to anger a lot of their customers, and it's going to really contradict a lot of um, what they spent years trying to establish. A lot of these companies, I'm not going to name specific companies, have spent millions of dollars saying we we're a company that loves dogs. We think that dogs. Um, are, are incredibly value, valuable in society and will protect 
you know, we're, we're here for your pets. So it'll be interesting if they're really willing to go before a jury and make arguments which, which really are inconsistent with, uh, with what they want their public image to be. How does a, how does a pet food contamination case differ from a, uh, a, 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 another kind of a product liability case or a pharmaceutical liability case? I mean, are, are there unique uh, issues raised here other than what you've just discussed? Is, is there, is, does it have to be approached in a different way than a, than a traditional products liability case? Sure. I, I think for the very reasons we're discussing, that the law in terms of valuing pets um, is is more fluid than some of these other areas. In a lot of ways, um, it is a products liability case, and a lot of the issues um, are going to be litigated in, in those similar ways. But but uh, in certain ways, it's a more evolving area of the of the law. I mean, is it just is it in the damages uh, more than the liability? Well, I mean, you're speaking of a plaintiff's lawyer here, so <laughs> I, I, I would say sure. Um, but uh, but there there are, there are significant liability issues. I'm sure that um, that uh, that the defendants are going to claim are going to make all the normal claims that they always make that uh, that we're going to have to show each individual pet was uh, was damaged by um, by the contaminated food. And I, I guess this is where it differs a little bit from. Uh, from a prescription drug case, because uh, when a person dies, there's there's a lot more testing that gets done, and you've got a, a longer medical record. Here, you've got certain pets who never even went to see a vet. Uh, we're, we're claiming that that Menu Foods actually knew about these problems for weeks, if not months, before issuing the recall, and so there was a long time when when pets were dying and people didn't know why they were dying, and we've got clients who buried pets in their backyard, and um, that's going to be one of those issues that, that come up. Who's, whose burden uh, of proof will, uh, who will bear the burden of proof on issues like causation? And, and, you know, we'll see what the court does. Bruce, I want to get back to a point that you mentioned a little bit earlier. Um, after being in Massachusetts for a while, I spent some time in the Midwest, and, you know, there are farmers and uh, people that raise hogs and cattle and uh, chickens and so forth that really have a very different perspective on animal rights, and certainly people that you know eat meat and 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 are involved with you know not being necessarily vegan or vegetarian. Do you think that they're that the country's ready for the kind of uh, lawsuits and so forth that are arising out of pet food contamination from the standpoint of how people view? Uh, pets and animals. I mean, you get kids that have 4-H cows that are not necessarily happy when you know they're taken to slaughter. Yeah, if I understand your question, I, well, I mean, I'll try to answer it this way. I, I don't think there's a, a connection for a lot of people between what's on their plate and the, the tainted pet food cases, because um, in fact, what's on their plate is probably also in the pet food. It's the good part of the pet food. Um, so the. The pet food cases, and all companion animal cases, I, I do a bunch of companion animal cases from hoarding to cruelty and abuse. Those cases are the much easier sells because uh, no matter what people think about animal rights and animal protection and veganism and vegetarianism, almost everybody joins together when you talk about dogs and cats, and especially dogs. Everybody is upset when a dog is abused, and, and very few people of that group are upset when a cow goes to slaughter. So these are, in some ways, the best kind of cases to uh, 
move forward the notion that animals are sentient feeling beings who have relationships uh, with humans and feelings of their own. If you, if you get everybody thinking in that way, uh, I, I have a shirt that says, make the connection. It's got a picture of a cow next to a picture of a dog. And, it, you know, you start to shift that way. Expanding just slightly on that, there's no question, I, I do a bunch of farm animal litigation, that most Americans, and, and it's across the country, Midwest, doesn't matter where they are, feel that the, the meat that ends up on their plate, they want to know, they want to believe that that animal was treated humanely before he became hamburger. Whether or not um, they eat meat, they want to feel that way. And survey after survey demonstrate that. So I, I think America is ready for a, a, a humaner uh, treatment of animals across the board. But, but again, I think you're talking apples and oranges almost when you're talking dogs and cats as opposed to any other kind of animal. Well, it's time for us to take a short break. When we return, we'll get some final thoughts from our guests after this break. We invite you to visit Law.com for timely legal news and in-depth resources. From daily headlines to practice-specific updates, Law.com provides up-to-date information to those working in the legal profession. As part of its coverage, Law.com is proud that J. Craig Williams' blog, May It Please the Court, and Robert Ambrogi's blog, Law sites are part of its blog network. Don't wait any longer. Visit Law.com today and get free subscriptions of our Newswire newsletter with the top legal stories of the day. Or sign up for a free trial subscription to one of our Practice Center sections. If you found us in the podcast library of iTunes, thanks for listening. Check out some of our other shows at LegalTalkNetwork.com and become a member. It's free. Lawyer to Lawyer is produced by the Legal Talk Network and a staff of broadcast professionals. If you have an idea for a topic or a show, we want to hear from you. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and send us an email. If you have a comment or question, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message on the Legal Talk Network listener line at 781-634-8959. We really do listen to the messages and even answer your questions on our next show. Did you know that Legal Talk Network podcasts are also available as CLE? Visit Law.com's CLE Center at www.clecenter.com. That's CLECenter.com to enjoy listening and get CLE credit. Check out our Lawyer to Lawyer host blogs, J. Craig Williams' blog at mayofpleasereport.com, likewise Robert Ambrogi's blog at LegalLine.com for daily legal observations, perspective, and, of course, a healthy dose of humor and wit. A video settlement documentary can be the most powerful and persuasive way to bring about a speedy settlement in your client's case. The Boston Media Group has a staff of television professionals with 20 years' experience writing and producing compelling stories just like the ones you've seen on 60 Minutes or Dateline. We put a human face on the lawsuit with compelling interviews, dramatizations, and visual presentations of the fact. Think of it as a video opening argument that will compel the attorneys on the other side to settle. Call us for a consult at 800-317-5221. That's 800-317-5221. Or check out our website at bostonmediagroup.com. 
And now, welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams. And this is Bob Ambrogi. We'd like to welcome back our guests, uh, Jay Edelson uh, from uh, uh, Chicago and uh, Bruce Wegman from San Francisco. And we are talking about uh, contaminated food litigation and some of the uh, broader issues uh, around uh, litigation and, and, and I won't say animal rights, but uh, uh, animal legal issues. Uh, I, there's a, there's a, a, a lawyer uh, out my way, Steve Wise, who's, who's written a few books about uh, this, and I, I know he teaches uh, animal rights courses. And uh, and Bruce, I understand that you've uh, have written this this case book, which I haven't had a chance to see. But uh, how uh, how much uh, is this field of law growing within the profession? I mean, it, I, I, I take I take it that law schools are teaching this, that students are interested in this, and that uh, lawyers such as yourselves are going into this. Uh, what is the uh, the state of this uh, field of law practice within the profession? Uh, rapidly expanding. I, I've been first. Steve is a colleague, friend, and mentor, um, and he actually lives in Florida. Although he does teach up there in Boston, he's okay. back. He used to live in Boston. Exactly. Um, let's we can just summarize in some ways with with myself. Uh, when I started teaching animal law, which is eleven years ago, there were six courses in the country. There are currently over eighty. That's in law schools. Uh, there's more uh, group, student group legal groups, uh, animal legal groups, usually called student animal legal defense funds in law schools around the country, even than those 80 schools. We're in the third edition of the casebook. There's another uh, casebook out there put out by David Favor, who's been practicing in the field for probably 20 or 25 years as well. It's uh, incredibly expanding. The Animal Legal Defense Fund just had a Future of Animal Law Conference at Harvard uh, sold out the entire place and had people on the waiting list. So it's growing by leaps and bounds. My my students are coming out of the woodwork. I have two summer associates this summer at my firm dedicated to doing nothing but animal law. So there's a couple of illustrations that it's it's growing rapidly. I think based again both on society's appreciation of animals and and the fact that this. It's really a, a stimulating and intellectually challenging field. Even in this uh, short piece, we've we've seen how interesting an issue uh, as simple as a, a product defect can be when when you inject uh, sentient beings. Jay, you mentioned earlier about menu foods and some of the issues that have occurred with them now that there's been such a you know kind of a groundswell groundswell change in the way that, as Bruce has described it. What kind of reaction are you getting from pet owners from that have lost their animals or have been sick and injured? And, and what kind of damages are you seeking? Or what kind of the individual people are they seeking? Well, one thing that we're doing, the, the reaction by, um, by our clients and by just other members of the public at large has been really, um, really interesting. It's really the, the most engaged group of clients that I've ever had. Um, and uh, these are people who, in many cases, uh, their kids lost, you know, a dog who was in the family for years who really was their kid's best friend. We had service animals who died. Um, we had uh, older people who, who relied on their pets. This has really been devastating. And um, rightly or wrongly, um, obviously I believe rightly, um, our, uh, my clients feel like, like this tragedy could have been averted if the pet food companies had just acted more responsibly. So there's a lot of anger, but also a lot of enthusiasm 
for trying to fix some of these problems. So I've been really honored uh, in working with my clients to try to get um, some laws changed on both the state level and federal level. Uh, here in Chicago, our, our home state senator, uh, Senator Durbin, is leading the charge to uh, change some of these laws at the federal level. And we obviously think maybe some, some of the suggestions could be made stronger, but, uh, but we're still proud of him for, for the efforts he's taking. And uh, we're also uh, working with state legislators um, as well. So, so we're, we're hoping that uh, some good will come out of this tragedy. What has been the role of the federal government in this, uh, the Food and Drug Administration in particular? Uh, I know they've been involved in, in at least the investigation of this to some extent. Uh, what, what actions are they taking, if any, regarding this? Oh, my, my view is they've just dropped the ball. Uh, the, someone on the Internet I think one of our clients actually is selling, has a website for pets and is selling a shirt that says FDA making FEMA look good. Um, so, uh, so no, we, the FDA has not been a leader on this. Uh, they've, they've contributed to a lot of the misinformation out there in terms of the extent of the problem, and uh, we frankly uh, have been disappointed by them. Bruce, do you have any uh, thoughts on that? Um, no, Jay's certainly been following that. I'm, I have not been following it at all. Where does this fit in? Uh, this litigation fit in uh, in in terms of the, the this general issue of, of, of animal law. I understand that that you're saying that this is kind of a, a, a small area of a large field. But have there been class actions uh, before? And I'm not. Uh, sure whether this has been certified as a class action yet, but hey, have there been class actions involving animal animal litigation, animal legal issues before, or is this the first? I, th I think other than the other uh, pet food case that I was involved in, um, I'm trying to think, I, I don't... There are often cases involving, you know, large organizations like the Humane Society of the United States. They're not specifically designated as class actions or the Animal Legal Defense Fund, the cases are brought, obviously, on behalf of hundreds of thousands of members, um, but not specifically procedurally as class actions other than the other tainted pet food case that I was involved in. Well, Jay and Bruce, we've pretty much reached the end of the program, and it's time for us to wrap up, so we'd like to get your final thoughts along with your contact information so that our listeners can reach you, and if they want to get involved with uh, Jay's class action matter, uh, how they can get a hold of him. So, Jay, let's start with you. Uh, I, I guess the only thing I would add is that uh, I really do feel privileged to uh, have been able to spend um, as much time in this case as I've spent. Uh, it's, as, as I said, it's, uh, we're working with the most engaged uh, clients that we ever had. Uh, the experts that we're working with are terrific. Uh, all the lawyers are acting really uh, collaboratively and uh, we think this is an important issue, so we're we're really thrilled to be working on this case, and hope that uh, we'll we'll do our clients justice. Uh, in terms of contact information, uh, best place to reach me is through my website www.blimlaw. B as in boy, L I M. That's M as in Mary. L A W. dot com. And Bruce Wegman, your final thoughts on this topic, and where can our listeners uh, find out more about you? Um, glad to participate. Uh, Definitely, it's part of a, a very large and expanding field, and uh, like like Jay said, it's the, the clients are always a pleasure, and, and most importantly for me, there's always human clients, but I, I think we all often feel that the animals are our clients with a lot of these cases, and that that's something that makes you feel good at the end of the day, too, even, even if you don't succeed in every one. So uh, it's a pleasure to be involved. 
you can reach me at uh, email is b wagman it's b w a g m as in mary a n as in nancy at s c h i f f h a r d i n dot com well, thanks very much, Bruce and Jay, for participating in today's program. Bob, it sounds like there's been a rather significant global shift in uh, how pets are treated and the law is treating pets, and I think that we're going to see more of this as, as we go on. This is a great topic. I, I've read a couple of Steve Wise's books, and, and it's something that's fascinated me. I never practiced in the area, but I, I, I would like to see us do some more programs on this and perhaps get some people on uh, from the manufacturer's side to talk about this some more. Let's give that a shot. Thanks a lot to our guests. Really appreciate it. It was a great discussion, great show. All right. Talk to you next week, Bob. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with Robert Ambrogi and Jake Craig Williams. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. Lawyer to Lawyer has been sponsored by Law.com. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.